This podcast is proudly supported by the Bartronica Bar, the home of Retro. You can find Bartronica at 335 Flinders Lane in the heart of Melbourne CBD. It's half museum, half bar. Check them out on Facebook or Instagram and become part of the Bartronica community. And so this month we're joined with this very special guest, the uh, Mr. C64 Audio. Wow, I'm, I think I need some of that caffeine you mentioned as well, Chris. But um, <laughs> shall, we, shall we go and get some coffees? Oh, I think that is <laughs> we're back fan- here in five minutes. <laughs> yep, I think we can do that. We'll keep, keep the mics hot. Um, but yeah, no, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Chris Abbott, how are you, sir? Habitological greetings to all. Oh, it's great great to have you on. And, uh, and I'm also joined nice. on... You are, right, Nice to be here. But I'm also joined alongside with me tonight is um, Mr. Tony Cruz. How are you, sir? Hey, how are you going? How are you Hi, going, Tony. Chris? Oh, I'm okay. Funding's funding nicely. Yes, oh, that's good. That's tell me if I'm f- t- tell me if I'm funding too loud. Now would you? We'd, uh, we'd also be normally be joined by our other host, Damien, who's, but he's currently gallivanting off around the countryside in your part of the woods. Oh, cool. Yes, he keeps on posting very colourful pictures from all over the place. Oh, excellent. Some so, good pubs. Oh, yeah, and I don't think he's made, I don't think they've quite made it that far. Oh, wait, you guys, no, you guys are still part of um, the EU, so technically it is your way. <laughs> Yeah, still oh, it's, for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah it hasn't quite made it across that last body of water yet. So no. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, oh, okay. Let's not even go. Um, yeah. So anyway, moving on. So um, Chris. Yeah. So Chris, Chris has come along tonight or this month to have a bit of a chat about a Kickstarter that he is involved in, all about the life and music of everyone's favourite sit artist, Rob Hubbard. So I guess Chris. Taking it from the top on this, I mean, where where did you actually sort of your background in Sid music and like where where did you actually get involved in the whole audio C sixty four audio scene from? And well, that was back in nineteen ninety four when there kind of wasn't one. Um, I I started I, I bought a sound card. I started doing some MIDI files of Commodore sixty four tunes, starting with like Action Biker, mm-hmm. and um, put them onto the internet as it was at that time. I had a, a a um a free account with the, the university I was working with so I put them up and people started to download them and I started to get letters and after a, a very roundabout process uh, I it got to the point where I'd, I emailed Rob Hubbard on CompuServe um in fact I emailed all the Rob Hubbards on CompuServe to see if uh, and that you could do that in those days <laughs> that was when email addresses just had numbers one oh one 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 at comma three thirty six at compuserve dot com. Oh wow! Um, and uh, eventually, I found Rob, and uh, we got talking. And 
the people who are listening to the MIDI files just uh, were saying, well, wouldn't it be great if this was like a studio CD? And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if this was a studio CD and Rob Hubbard was involved mm-hmm. and it was done properly because Rob deserves a reward for, you know, all his all his work. <laughs> and so then back in time, one eventually happened, followed by a couple more CDs. And uh, at one point I decided to do live performances uh, to I thought wouldn't it be great to have uh, Commodore 64 music in a big nightclub because there's all these dance remixes so wouldn't it be cool to have dancing girls dancing to Commando and and we have BBC footage of that so (laughs) oh wow (laughs) the BBC turned turned up at the first one Uh, BBC Birmingham not any uh, but uh, that was fun Um, there's a good news report on that um Eventually, bands started to form like Press Play on Tape and Sid 80s, uh, who were created for uh, one of the Back in Time lives. And it kind of, the whole thing mutated. And through the whole of that, there was the intention to uh, to run an orchestral concert of uh, of Commodore 64 music. Yep. Do, you, do you remember that at Zap 64, they had a review of Thing on the Spring? And uh, the review of the music said, uh, the London Symphony Orchestra might just be able to do better. So, fast forward 30 years, and the the plan is to make the London Symphony Orchestra do thing on the spring better. Oh, that's fantastic! I would. So let's see where we go with that. That's that's partially what the Kickstarter is about. Rob is on board with the concert idea. He's an he's basically a, a classical jazz orchestrator by now, and so uh, everything that's happened is basically all attached to this one journey towards the concert. And the only thing getting in our way is the fact that you have to pay the venue and the orchestra deposit up front, which you don't see back until after the concert when you get the ticket money. Yeah. So there's this £20,000 gap that has to be filled, and I'm not in a position to be able to finance that personally. Um, Now, you can't sell tickets because the barber can sell tickets. You can't so you can't sell tickets in advance, um, no. and you you can't sell recordings of the concert because it costs about forty thousand to even authorize the clearance for releasing those recordings. So you yeah. there's nothing to sell in advance to make the deposit to make the concert happen. Oh, that's um, nasty. It's it's complicated, and that, then you've got the having to actually give them music, otherwise they'd just be on the stage doing nothing, which is not very interesting. No, I mean. It's the London Sympathy Orchestra and all, but um, yeah. But that, but that's where the the orchestrations were done with another Kickstarter, where I sold, where we were selling mock-ups of of the recordings in order to fund the actual sheet music that's going to the orchestras. Yep. So, um, it's all it's all one big long journey, and in the middle of that, Rob Hubbard wanted to celebrate his career. He's had a long career. Mm. It, it it predates Sid. It postdates Sid. And people mm. only ever only ever concentrate on the middle bit with the Sid. But there's a lot of other interesting stuff he did, tunes that he did, work that he did, mm-hmm. um, across the whole spectrum. And that's what that, that's why there needs to be a book to get all this stuff together, get the the stories together, the anecdotes, get the timeline correct, have a definitive thing that Wikipedia can refer to, a, a thing that exists. So we yeah. know got official reference of rob hubbard no one has to go off and look at this youtube video or that youtube video or that interview or this interview all in one place absolutely meticulously researched and very satisfying for fans 
and also yeah. to looking at how Rob Hubbard affected people's lives. Mm-hmm. He made people go into the software industry. He made them become musicians. He had a huge impact on people that he, he never kind of, being the modest guy that he is, he never kind of emotionally gets. There, there are people who say, oh, yeah, you, you're, you're the main reason I became what I am today. And he's like, I was just doing some work. <laughs> I was just, I was just making a living, guys. You know, it's nothing special. But I mean, I think he, by this time, it, he, it has occurred to him that it was special. And it did have an effect on people. And uh, um, if you get him in the right mood, he enjoys talking about it. Um, as long as you don't ask the same questions over and over again, commando. Ugh. Working Ben, ben on our feet, the same Monty. Yep. But there's such a lot of other. There's such a lot of other anecdotes there. Yeah. Um, the stuff that, that how EA developed over time, for instance, there's a whole yep. sub narrative of of EA turning from a call company to a management driven corporate entity that no that had a shitload of producers, pure music licensing, and kind of lost the the track of of soundtracks. That Rob was composing. In, in the early 90s, composing music for Sherlock Holmes and Shockwave and yep. and um, Road Rash and whatever. And then they started licensing the music and then they it drifted away. Um, Rob, Rob told me, told me um, an example about how producers became more important and how they became kind of... Uh, uh, it, it's the same in the music industry. Producers came in who were businessmen who thought they knew music. And so they were dictating to musicians what to do. And uh, he, he, he'd written a piece that they, they'd asked for a happy piece. And he said, submitted it. And they said, no, it's not happy enough. And um, he laughed at that because it was basically whistle while you work, reversed, and with a happy key change. So they actually, <laughs> they actually rejected something based on one of the happiest tunes ever created as being not happy enough so if that doesn't illustrate the cluelessness of of business people who try to become music critics or who try to it it, it, it happens in the pop industry as well everything is spreadsheet driven demographic driven uh, me too stuff whereas in the in the 70s and 80s people had a lot more creative control over what they were doing there weren't producers stand. There was, there was no produ- no producer would have let Rob create Knucklebusters. It's a 17-minute progressive rock track, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. It, it sounds like nothing before or since. No one would have signed off on that. It's too weird. Yeah. Even Rob pressed play on tape. The, the band pressed play on tape did a version of that at back in time live Brighton, and I played it to Rob, and he said, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> because <laughs> even he couldn't work out what mindset he was in when he did that but he was he was sitting there connected entirely you know master of all he surveyed mm-hmm. and he produces that for no other reason than it seemed like a good idea at the time i mean that that sort of thing is just in today's video game music scene that's unheard of you would have yeah. producer upon producer upon budget upon budget micromanaging everything temp tracks which force people to do things they don't want to do even people like danny elfman Mm -hmm. and so creative freedom is out the window in the service of money Uh, but what can you do yeah it was definitely an an age of creative um you know of of creation the late 70s and the 80s um 
and you could even see that um, control exerted over other fields as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the graphic artists and even the programmers. Absolutely, yes. There, there was so much. Um, I, I think it's because when it started off, um, people didn't see any money in it, proper money in it. So the people who went into it tended to be more innovators. Um, the, the the pioneers and then the money men swooped in when it was clear there was actually a killing to be made and just cut everybody off and yes. just ins- inserted themselves into that process uh, ruthlessly I must add and then it became corporate driven and quality was uh, well I mean there's still great quality I mean actually the Clank got produced Grand Theft Auto got produced you know Tomb Raider got produced so yeah. there there was there's quality stuff coming out. I mean, you know, the Nintendo stuff, I'd play that all day, you know, oh. Super Mario Switch, you know, Paper Mario. But, um, but I don't know if you've played like Cuphead, you know, most recently in the last couple of weeks it's come out. Um, I like I like the look of it. Um, I, I gather it's a bit hard and I'm a crap game player, so. It's, um, but, uh, yes. Um, but no, it's, um, but, you know, but even that, like you said, like the music there, you've got, that's a situation where, you know, this is something where, because they they're independent, they they have the whole you know swing band and they've got everything where they've they've taken a punt on let's make this game like it is and you know to me I think that was a big part of what 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 attracted me to it. So all power to their elbow, yeah. Mm. They, they the the problem with um, I mean the 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 whole mobile scene really was a shot in the arm to independent developing, mm. but um, the problem then is is all the Me Too games all the the difficulty in getting seen, yep. the absolute pandemonium of people of people all broadcasting their wares, and the difficulty in getting any um, getting any traction even for good stuff. Um, yeah, it's but you've got to stand out. But I, I I don't envy them, but I'm glad that they've made made a splash because that's the kind of that's the kind of um, consistent art that that people really kind of enjoy in which requires a lot of personal sacrifice to get to i think mm, mm. um you know the, the a lot of these um indie projects are coming off from much smaller teams um compared to you know the literally hundreds of people that can be chucked at projects by the bigger companies absolutely yes and um there, there doesn't seem to be as much emphasis in the the triple a games on actual fun except for nintendo it's mm. all kind of it's all kind of grindy, and the music is technically recorded by orchestras and whatever. But it's so glum. It's where's the fun? Where's the stiff lip and co? Where's the thing on the spring? <laughs> you can't put it in, you know, Call of Duty. <laughs> yeah. So funny, so funny to put jolly Commodore sixty four tunes into Call of Duty, so oh. shooting people up while the Monty on the run is going. Oh. Da, 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 da. Say, get, get the wild violin out while you're you're blasting away. We ought to. We ought to do that actually. Call of Duty, Commodore sixty four, Sid version. That'd be that'd be funny. Well, <laughs> hey, we've got a few programmers that listen, so if you if you're out there <laughs> Yeah, you just do a YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> just oh, superimpose a load of uh, a load of comic bullet effects and uh, and some Sid soundtracks and bang, you've got uh, a, an extremely non viral video because no one will get it. But it'd still be fun. Oh good good lord. Um <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, the world needs more wild wild violin. That's for sure. 
Definitely does. But the first play to the first guy to play um, Monty on the run that I know of in full with through the solo was Australian. Oh really? Yeah, Pascal uh, Pascal Rogan. Um, he played at, at in two thousand at our two thousand and two event. Okay. I wonder if that's is that the video that is one of the video called couples and that do the rounds. Um, I think there's there's a, there's a, there's a video of him rehearsing it. Yep. Um, and we only needed three respirators afterwards, so you know I call that well, a win. That's yeah, that's reasonable because <laughs> it's 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 insane. Um, it it really is. And since then, Mark Knight's been doing it, um, otherwise known as TDK on the Amiga. Yep. Uh, great guy. He's he's for the Kickstarter. He's doing Rob Hubbard sounds like John Carpenter. So that's uh, that's Ooh, something. Interesting. A, a whole album of of something that sounds exactly like a late seventies, early eighties John Carpenter track, but with Rob Hubbard tunes. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, John Carpenter as well. So there's a, there's a sample of him doing Nemesis the Warlock on the on the Kickstarter page. There's also a preview of the new Sids there. I've, I must say, look, I've, I've had a look through a lot of it. I haven't had a chance to have a listen to a lot of the things there because it's packed and life is packed. <laughs> I, I was actually just going to say I'm really slack, and I, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. So I guess I mean you, you've kind of touched on a little bit about this is this has been a project that's been almost in the works since, like you said, the, the Zap review of thing on a spring. But I mean, when mm-hmm. when did you sort of really get to a point where you said actually? This this is something I I want to do like this this has to happen. Uh, around about 2014, the the idea for the concert came up again, mm-hmm. and then in a roundabout way there was a sheet music project that someone proposed, and then uh, a Rob Hubbard piano CD got put into that. And by the time the Kickstarter that particular Kickstarter had been specified, Rob Hubbard had taken over basically the entire Kickstarter. Hmm. Uh, so at that <laughs> point, it says okay. Rob's got to have his own Kickstarter. And, of course, Matt Gray had his own Kickstarter as well, which I, I kind of – I kickstarted the Kickstarter, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was entirely by accident uh, because Matt Matt was looking around for someone to help who'd actually run Kickstarters before and, and couldn't find anybody. So I was like, okay, I'll do it then. <laughs> and, um, you know, he became a Kickstarter expert over time, uh, over the course of that campaign. So – um, when he came to do the second one, he didn't really need much from me at all, which is good. Yeah. Because I was uh, busy by that point doing orchestrations. <clears throat> um, but yeah, 2014, and then it, it was kind of developed in various forms over then. The, the, the difficult parts were um, producing new SIDS when Rob's forgotten how to program 6502 oh. and doesn't have his... And getting getting some new remixes when... There have already been thousands of remixes, and Rob has to do something to stand out. Yeah, and yeah. so solving those two problems is what I'm most proud about in this Kickstarter because Rob is involved, yeah. um, and the end products are um, going to be great. Um, the, the, the in terms of the sets, uh, the the thing is, it's present present day Rob, who is Doctor Rob Hubbard, musicologist. And who is in orchestral and jazz orchestration? He's a very different musical beast to how he was in the mid '80s, but when he was experimenting with synth technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, he would have he would have evolved, I'm sure. So absolutely, and and if you think about it, uh, taking uh, if you go go to people were saying to him, okay, um, okay, go and get your old driver, 
start programming it again and produce the sequel to Sanction only better. <laughs> how how much pressure is that to on a guy who's already had a long career and has already delivered and done enough work? I don't know. Ask mm. George Lucas. Uh, and uh, but luckily for us, past Rob did a lot of a lot of work that was never turned into SIDS. And he left us a lot of drivers, all of which have particular sound design choices and sounds and whatever. So the idea was, okay, you take a Rob Hubbard piece from the day. I mean, some of his other pieces were turned into SIDS, so why not those ones? It was just a, uh, a matter of chance that he chose that one rather than that one. Yeah. And so you mesh, you mesh that Rob Hubbard composition would say, okay, that sounds as if he'd have... And let's say Rob says, you know, oh, that sounds a bit Dragon's Lair 2. I would have done it like Dragon's Lair 2. And then this is where Jason Page comes in. Of, of uh, He used to uh, Iridium 2, Graft Gold, and now works at Unity, yeah. who's a brilliant, uh, brilliant SID composer now uh, on his own. And he, he was doing, uh, re- replicating exactly Sanction in two voices out of three just as a technical exercise in how much close he could get to the Rob Hubbard sound and so we merged all that together and we start getting 10 new SIDs they're Rob Hubbard SIDs yep. it's Rob Hubbard sounds he didn't we didn't chain him to a radiator and make him type in the note data hmm. um, and there's some people who would prefer that we did <laughs> but well, yeah. this way there's more SIDs they're as good quality as as any he released back in the day, and Rob's not Rob's happy with with the fact that it's happening. Yeah, it's happening in a nice organic process by the sounds of it. So, absolutely yes, and he's very very pleased to hear his his old tunes as the SIDs he would have programmed them at the time, without having to actually spend two weeks doing it. Yeah. Mm. Um, at, uh, it's, it's Ben Douglas who pointed out that everyone from John Williams to Michelangelo gets in people to do the actual grunt work. Like it's not Michelangelo's ceiling if you count, okay, Joe Bloggs painted that bit and Joe. Uh, it, it's a question of who made the artistic decisions mm. and who and who was responsible for the overall concept. Uh, and then the, how that's executed is not quite irrelevant. I mean, for instance, uh, Martin, it's a kind of magic. Uh, the theme from Highlander that Martin Galway did. Is that a Martin Galway Sid or is it a Freddie Mercury Sid or a Queen's Sid? The answer to that is it's a a Martin Galway Sid, but not because he did the programming, but because he was the one who arranged it and made the sound design decisions and made it a piece of work in its own right. If he'd have made those exact same decisions and someone else at Ocean had done the driver, it would still be a Martin Galway Sid. Yeah, yeah, because he drove the creative direction, yeah. And Ben Daglish is a co-author of Afida Saint Monty. We've got an interview of him saying, well, you know, Rob, uh, it, it's in the extended Kickstarter video of him saying, well, yeah, when it came to programming, it, Rob kicked me out of the room because <laughs> he was very protective about his driver. <laughs> so, I'm doing this myself. And uh, so, you know, Ben had as much input into Afida Saint Monty as Rob did on, on the tunes and creative side, but um, had absolutely no... Uh, input into the programming, but it is still a Ben Daglish and Rob Hubbard Sid. Yeah. And I have total respect for these guys because, uh, as good a coder as I am myself for the um, game components, I've always lacked in the um, music department. So um, I have um, very high respect for anybody who can um, program the tunes. So 
Well, the the hope is that the in, in the book uh, that we're doing, the official Rob Hubbard, uh, Rob Hubbard, the official reference, um, it, it, the the process of doing that will be made much clearer to non-technical people. Mm, to, to try and give a an, uh, to try and give people the gist of what he was doing and how he was doing it without getting bogged down in having in looking at a disassembler. Oh, that there will be. We have his electronic arts driver with proper source code and labels and stuff, and that will be in the book. Wow! Or available online um, if we if we kind of we've only got one point one kilograms to play with on the book. So if we fill mm-hmm. it with too much stuff, we may have to <laughs> have a have a digital appendix online. But um, um, uh, there's a way of describing it and a way of showing what he's doing without having people having to understand programming. The Mm. the idea is that people come away from it feeling as if, oh, right, yeah, that's how he did it. Come away feeling cleverer rather than feeling dumber. Mm. And that's that's a good approach. And that's the the point of the book. And the, the the book is separated into four sections because if we'd have gone to Rob and said, hey, we're doing a biography of you, it's like 300 pages long and we want to know what you were doing on 3rd of November 1979, oh. um, he would have had... A, 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 it's not where Rob is. Yep. Rob, Rob, Rob is his work to an extent. And the the story of Rob Hubbard is the story of how people react to Rob Hubbard. It's how they react to his music, how they're changed by it, what it's like working with him. Um, From his point of view, he was just going through life doing music and and having the occasional funny experience with uh, with other people. And so there's there's a biograph there's a biographical part of that which fills in the timeline and fills in some very useful gaps about you know where he went to school and what he was doing before the SIDS and how he got into that and what he did after that and what happened at Electronic Arts and what happened since then but that's only a quarter of the book because that's about right uh, the rest the, the half of the book is devoted to his music and the technology mm-hmm. and in various aspects like um, how you how you orchestrate SIDS, how his drivers changed over time, what the sound effects look like when you draw them, um, uh, the A- the AY and the Atari 8-bit and the Amiga and the ST stuff as well, the Electronic Arts, the Genesis stuff, the NES stuff, all this multi-platform stuff that was going on under the radar. And then there's a portion of the book where which concentrates on the fans, the remix scene, the the, yep. the live performances, the concerts, and everything else. That so you've got a nice spread. You've got something for the fans who want to uh, see, uh, have the music analysed, and say, okay, why did that music work? Why? Why did? What decisions did he make there that made me feel like that? Mm-hmm. And why did that work in the context of the game? And uh, Kenny McAlpine, who's doing that, is a doctor at the University of Abertay is the UK's foremost chip musicologist and a huge Rob Hubbard fan, and he's really keen on doing this. This is kind of like his dream project yeah. because, you know, being being in academia, you don't often get a, a too much of a choice about what to do. And being, yeah. able to, being able to dive deep on Rob Hubbard's actual music and sound and how those went oh. together to create certain impressions, it, it's an exercise That's... in confirmation bias. Yep. Uh, people like Rob, this book will give them further proof as to why they're correct to do so. And something to wave in the face of people who say chip music is just blips and blops, no musical quality whatsoever. Um, Mm. Because uh, chip music and orchestral music, if you look at them, you've still got only two to three to four things going on 
at one time in most classical music is very is almost tracker based in you've got a bass line you've got a, a lead you've got some chords and you've got some some percussion mm-hmm. it's yeah. the same in chamber music yeah. and uh, it, the the steps the steps across if you like in in classical music are still quite large i mean eight like eighth notes so it goes dum 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 and there's something happening on each of those things um so the, the differences between a chip music representation and a, an orchestral piece is basically just to do with scale and how you combine the instruments and you have extra you have extra ability to do extra harmonies and 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 other twiddles but if you do too many of those you end up over orchestrating and that's a mistake i've made while i've been learning to orchestrate in order to feed the concert i've I've done too much and rob hubbard's come in and he said to me yeah i like what you've done with flash gordon but it's over orchestrated and that cello player is going to die (laughs) so (laughs) and so he took it took it on and spent a week on it and gave it back to me and it was much improved yeah and because he said the, the, that particular Flash Gordon orchestration, somehow I accidentally managed to capture what he meant to do with the Sid, but technically uh, it needed changes so that real people could play it without getting bored, and that the balance was right, and and that this is where Rob excels because he's a musical theorist and has had so much more experience than me in, in orchestrating. I'm kind of a hack compared to him. Yeah. Um, but I'm a hack with time and uh, motivation, so yeah, <laughs> it tends to work out. And if, it, and if in doubt, just steal John Williams. So yeah. that works. Oh, that would be... <laughs> Jeez, how, did, did they tell you how much it would be to uh, to get John to come and conduct? <laughs> oh. oh, boy, oh yes. God, that's, uh, that's getting into fan I, 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 I didn't even bother asking. No. Um, but... but uh, uh, well, for, yeah. for the for the next Kickstarter, then shall we say? Oh well, uh, I think he'd, <laughs> I, I think he'd be strained by uh, the by the sheer speed of some of the tracks. <laughs> I think his arms may not wave quickly enough. But uh, uh, some of some of the tunes that are in the concert are, are borrowing quite heavily from from his orchestration techniques. Um, there's one one tune which mashes up Barbarian Two and Parallax High Score, for uh, and that makes a rollicking Star Trek Next Generation Superman-y type score, which which borrows heavily from uh, the the orchestration choices he made. Because mm-hmm. uh, because when you start off with with orchestrating, you're like, what the fuck do I do now? And you say, okay, if I if if I take inspiration from John Williams, I'm not actually going to go that far wrong. No. So. You, that's where you start off and eventually you get a, a better feel for things so you don't have to kind of you don't have to reference the source material as often even though it's kind of handy sometimes to rein yourself in because you think oh I'm being cleverer than those other composers by putting all this stuff in and then someone turns around and says you've got too much stuff in there man mm-hmm. overcomplicating it yeah I think it's a, it's a stage you go through as a, as a newbie first of all you get to grips with it and then you, you overcomplicate everything and then you have to be, rein yourself back and realize, okay, keep it simple, stupid, and then put the essentials in so that you make the impression you want to make, and then don't over-egg the pudding. And that's a process that kind of takes years. I mean, I, I'm two years down the line, and I still feel like a beginner, even though I've got 20 orchestrations, 20 to 
orchestrations under my belt, but I just have to go back to them and say, oh, okay, right, I need to change that and that and that because Thing on the Spring's got too much going on in the rhythm section and Monty on the Run. Yeah, it's uh, what I've done is detract from the impact, so I need to remove stuff and then make the existing stuff sound, give that much more space to convey the, the what the tune means. Yeah, constant learning process. That's good. Absolutely. And um, I have a good sort of relationship with Rob Hubbard on that. We've both got Sibelius, so we swap Sibelius files, and he's been orchestrating as well some of his uh, older tunes. He just sent me a tune to, to put scans off in the book that he wrote when he was 12. Oh, oh nice. Wow. So, so we'll have to do a SID of that. But since it's, very, since it's basic music, I might get the US gold loader off CSDB and <laughs> plug it into that so it's all grindy. <laughs> so, Here's what he here's how he would have done it if uh, if uh, Commodore 64s had existed in the 60s, I was going to say, or yeah, the 70s, yeah. 60s, I think. Yeah, would have been a while while back because yeah, he's. I think that would have been 1968. He would have written that, so that's the first Sid. Apart from all the classical pieces, I guess. Yeah. Oh, God, he's nah, the... I remember certainly listening to him when he was um, having a chat with the guys from the Retro Hour back in June, I think it was, um, which is well mm-hmm. worth well worth a listen if anyone hasn't already checked it out. Um, which, yeah, because I think it was one of his very rare public sort of interviews and chats that um, he is a bit of a recluse at the best of times when it comes to yeah. this side of things. Yes, it's, it, it kind of depends. He goes through a phase when he, he kind of engages with it a bit more, but it does tire him out. And he says it feels a bit like a double life. Mm-hmm. It's like there's this fictional Rob Hubbard uh, that, that, that appears as the main character in video games in a Kickstarter or uh, is, is that 64 personality Rob Hubbard. And then there's the actual Rob Hubbard. Jeez. And uh, he, he, he very strongly feels that duality. And uh, sometimes... Uh, it, I mean, he is semi-retired. Uh, he he does music and jazz and whatever, but you know he's earned he's earned a bit of a rest. And when life is stressful at the best of times, so yeah, yeah, everybody likes to slow down sometimes. So, well, the the point about the Kickstarter was to give him the maximum input and the maximum enjoyment and the minimum amount of actual grunt work that he didn't want to do. Yeah, that's that's what it's about. Um, it's it's rewarding him for a life and a career that I think was underappreciated. I think he, he touched so many lives and made so many software houses, and and now it's a forgotten niche of history, populated by ten to twenty thousand people. Maybe maybe I, I would always hope it's more um, more than that because I've got a concert that needs fifteen hundred bums on seats. <laughs> oh, <look at> <laughs> so uh, please please come. I do believe the retro culture is um, is expanding and spreading out. Um, you only have to see the popularity of retro figures in modern media, um, you know, films and, and whatnot, and, um, you know, books that are now being turned into movies and things like that that have, um, you know, an 80s or 70s. Um, I mean, even Guardians of the Galaxy you know, has brought back a whole lot of um, late 70s music. Indeed, yes. I mean, it was a classic time. Um, I think music has eaten itself. Uh, it's it. It's like um, Commodore sixty four music went through a, an almost similar process because the first people who came into Commodore sixty four music, there was no money, there was no reward, there was no fame, mm. there was no being a rock star. You had to be 
really into it. And you had to bring stuff from outside. Musical influences, uh, Rob, uh, Rob and Fred and Martin, they all bought different influences. Martin bought some, some uh, blue, um, some bluegrass influences. Yep. And Jean-Michel Jarre and UB40 and Level 42 and and Jarre. And Rob was bringing Chick Corea and other Herbie Hancock and uh, the, the electronic musicians of the 70s. Tim Follin spent his uh, formative years sitting in an attic listening to progressive rock records. Hmm. Um, and so they they all... And Richard Joseph was an actual rock star for a while and before leaving and becoming a computer musician. And all his all his friends said to him, ah, going to waste your time on being a computer musician. Well. And uh, he had the last laugh when he became a rock star with Amiga and they were all struggling. Um, but those those composers bought stuff onto the SID and which made it very interesting and resulted in different sounds. Once you'd got a second generation of composers whose primary musical input was the first lot of composers you started to see a homogenization of sid mm -hmm. and especially when they wrote trackers because then more people could get involved but they had less ideas yes with exceptions there are always there's always people who like uh johan bjerregaard and ryan Auerhand were both being classically trained um People like Glenn and Galafoss made a, a really good made really good stuff. There's always talent, yep. and if they bring it, if they bring ideas, then then they're still as good as ever. Even though the sounds became kind of standardised a little bit. Um, I mean that's a generalisation because there's loads of good Sid composers and they brought loads of good ideas and they had different sounds and whatever. But in general, there was a Me Too effect because people came for the lifestyle as and to mm -hmm. be a composer and i count myself among that because i wanted to be a, mm. a, a game music composer because rob hubbard was because of the musicians ball and zap 64 yeah. because of the musicians have become personalities and pop stars in the same way that nick kershaw and howard jones were to me that it was all equally valid in my in my teenage scheme of things um and then then the Amiga had the samples, which, um, in retrospect, it was a, a great technical thing, but it did result in a, another standardization of sounds, except where people actually bothered to go away and do something different. Dave Whitaker did. Mm -hmm. um, he his his stuff was very clever mm, on the mm, Amiga. It's it, small and. Uh, if anything, it was the technical limitations that continued to pop up that encouraged people to do unique stuff because everyone would solve, find different ways to solve the problem of how do I do X in X bytes. If there, if there had been unlimited stuff, everything would have sounded pretty much the same. They would have gone and got top quality samples and just played those, which is pretty much where we are now with game music now, where there's unlimited technology. Uh, unlimited technology. With is just yeah, by how much money you want to spend and how much time you want to burn on it. It's yeah, yeah, and it all ends up sounding pretty similar. So, well, no, I I don't want to I don't want to slag it off because uh, it's it's written for a very specific purpose and the you know it's it's very professionally done and it conveys the emotional atmosphere it's required to convey. It, mm -hmm. It's it's functional and effective and occasionally inspired especially when they go ethnic or but the, the, those decisions aren't made on the basis of technical limitations anymore yeah. and it's when humans are faced with technical limitations that they have the most creativity mm. yep yeah no no arguments on that but, um, 
Yeah, so uh, I guess with so with this, I mean, you're you're pretty close to the uh, the target. I noticed on the Kickstarter as well. You're only a couple of days in, and you're already where are you at? I think nearly was about seventy seventy five percent of the way there. Um, yeah, it'll it'll it's, it always slows down. The next week's going to be pretty pretty slow. I would have thought. Um, I, most people are either early people or late people. And I'm really grateful for all the middle people because they stop it becoming a complete. You know, you you're in uh, anyone who runs a Kickstarter will tell you about the the saggy middle. We we call it the Valley of Death. Yep. Um, and if you're not prepared for it, it can really make you very depressed and cause you to do some you know uh, some desperate things to try and move the needle. None of which usually work. Yeah. What you have to what you have to do during that time is keep positive, yep. keep keep uh, giving people new reasons to back the kickstarter new content new things to say not keep saying the same thing over and over again uh we've got our blog posts on c64audio.com we've got one coming up that takes you through here rob's the first part of rob's ea career and it looks at um the, the different platforms he targeted and there's luckily youtube is a mine of information and we've also got rob's documents that show what he wrote and when he wrote it so given that, you can create a story of, of, of stuff that over time that helps people understand why, where the Kickstarter is coming from and just gives them something interesting to listen to, like the, the Tandy 1000 version of Skate or Die, for instance, or Kings of the Beach, uh, or the, the ad-lib version of Kings of the Beach, which is different again. Yeah. And that, uh, it's all it's interesting to some people, including me. Yeah. Oh. And then, then there's we've got to write the story of the concert and mm-hmm. write the story of Rob Hubbard on the Spectrum and yep. Rob Hubbard on the ST and mm. and uh, to to kind of pull that into perspective and also allow us give us give us a valid reason to talk to uh, people on other platforms who think that Rob Hubbard was only a C64 composer. Um, he did more that they he did more than they think he did. And the the concert that we're doing is called Eight Bit Symphony. And it's called that for a reason, because there will be a ZX Spectrum medley, there will be a BBC micro medley, and there, uh, and those things won't be afterthoughts. Um, it'll be we're talking with the BBC fans. So uh, at the moment, for the BBC medley, there, there's a piece that they venerate called Cold Tea, which was originally a piano piece. Yep, and was in a, a particular demo and it's kind of uh, in the Commodore 64 scene, the equivalent would be stationary arc, which appeared in the synth sample demo and is now much more remembered for being in that demo than the original tune ever was for being in the documentary it was in. In fact, there's no original recording of the original soundtrack. So the only reason the soundtrack exists now is because someone bothered enough uh, Georgie file. It was, yep. uh, if I pronounced that correctly to actually do a version and distribute it to people and cold tea is the bbc version of that and i'm i'm hoping we can get the original pianist mm-hmm. on stage playing that to bbc owners See, if they turn up if mm. how cool is that that is i mean i've i've honestly i personally don't know the track but bbc's weren't exactly a um a backyard thing here that much no no it's it, it, it's a it's a it's a Abit Symphony, as it's set up, is a is a celebration of British home computing, essentially. The best home um, computing. 
<laughs> British home computing. But you can, there's enough of a trackball that you can reconfigure that and make it a, a purely Commodore 64 celebration if you if you um, rent out the scores to orchestras in other countries, which is the plan. Okay. Um, it's just you can't rent, you can't get orchestras interested in something that's never been played successfully before by a real orchestra. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so we're having to use the our concert as a showcase to say, look, this music is good, this music is playable, it's here. All you need to do is ask, yep. oh. and give us some money because this stuff is expensive Ooh, yes. to do. <laughs> um, it's a, a lot of investment Just... in time, mostly. Well, if you but uh, you wouldn't believe how much we spent on orchestral sample libraries. I... Man, oh, yeah, did it up. Yeah, I don't think I want to even ask or think about it. <laughs> luckily, uh, a company called Orchestral Tools sponsored us. Okay. Um, so uh, what I did was I integrated their libraries into the scoring software I use, and then they gave me the libraries. So, oh, wow. And they're the best libraries, so thank God. Oh, nuts. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. That's awesome, though. But, um, it's also good. I mean, from a, I mean, you touched on it a couple of times briefly, though, from a preservation perspective as well i mean this sort of these sort of projects are just massively essential because yeah like you said you've got a documentary that a soundtrack doesn't exist except for someone happening to do a, a version of it on a, an 8-bit computer and you know with rob obviously you know time gets on memories fade and other stuff it's it's good to see that you know we are getting this sort of stuff where it's definitive it's got his mark of approval so absolutely it doesn't go in without him approving of it yep. so that's the that's the you know the gold standard really mm. that this is there is there'll be not one word in that book that rob hubbard hasn't approved personally yeah which is which says a lot of things about the authenticity of the whole thing so mm -hmm. hey, there's a lot of stuff that can't go in because it's uh it's too spicy <laughs> too, <laughs> too, too litigious. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to get him to do those and put it in a vault for being released in the year twenty one hundred or something. Yeah, we'll just, no one, no one left around. That's uh, from <laughs> when you've when you've been in the industry in the industry for that long. There, there's personalities and there's things going on and shenanigans and none of that will can be in the book because it uh, it, it distracts from the music and the point of the book yeah. and also you know lawyers are expensive. Well, this is it right? exactly, and it's. Uh, I mean, while the the comedy option is there, it's uh, keeping on the positive vibe is a lot more important than getting a few, you know, bit of quick publicity for a story about someone that maybe doesn't want that public. Well, absolutely, it's it's about Rob and his music. That's uh, it's it's. If there were any emotional crises, um, I don't think the, the readers care that much about that. If uh, they 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 want to get a clear idea of where his music came from, how he did it, and where it's going. Yeah. And they were more they want to read the book and come out with an impression that their impression of Rob Hubbard was justified or even underrated. Yeah. No, look I'm the more I've certainly heard about him and you know, the stuff especially like I said with his the chat with the um Dan and Ravi was very much a an eye opener because yeah, I've largely associated him with c64 stuff and things and it's when you start mm -hmm. hearing him talk about like you said the ea work and the fact of you know what he's actually qualified as and his things like that that it's you suddenly start to realize that you know it's he is an incredibly incredibly talented man he is and uh really modest as well um 
uh, also misunderstood. I think uh, he he gave um he gave a talk recently at a there was a thing uh, it was a conference about music in Bath, and um, he was talking and they they were taking taking it incredibly seriously in terms of like uh, almost too seriously in terms of the music um, structure and whatever and Rob was like wow they they were talking to me and it was kind of right over my head it just what was that about so the people were enthusiastic which is good about mm. what he was what he was telling them although it wasn't specifically related to his computer game work but it was related to um, orchestration and arranging but um, I think he, he felt that they kind of missed the point a little bit um, and uh, he was talking to them as a, as a he is at heart a, a jazz man and an orchestrator but, and he knows a lot of musical theory but he doesn't go on about it and he's not an academic and that's why he, he was able to produce such good stuff because he just got his hands dirty and got on with it yeah just the way to do it. It's like okay, roll up the sleeves, get programming. No, no worrying about about uh, whether Bach would approve, or yeah, or whether or... whether he whether it was too cliched or whatever. Yeah. And that, when he started doing Sid, he he he, he um, he's on record as saying that his early tunes were were crowd pleasers. They were um, they were he was giving software companies what he thought they would want for their tune, their games based on the fact that computer games should be cheery and and happy. Mm. And it was only later that he realized he had that he he could do what he damn well liked and did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris, so I suppose look, on you I mean look on a more of a personal slant, I mean you what's what's your favourite Hubbard track? Um probably Kentilla. Um a, a, the, the the story behind that one is that um uh Back in 1998, Rob sent me a, a DAT tape of, of Kintilla as he'd orchestrated it using uh, using a, the particular orchestral libraries at that time. Mm-hmm. I'd always loved the original piece. It was just so long and winding, but so evocative of medieval, uh, the medieval countryside and medieval ways of life. And it just was, uh, it it just touched me. And hearing it orchestrated was pretty. It was the the impetus to build on. And say, look, this stuff should be really played. And now I've got a a, a new orchestration of Kentilla uh, sitting on my hard disk, waiting to be recorded with better sounds. And um, we can't play that version of Kentilla at the at the concert we're planning because there's too much. We've got too much material. Mm-hmm. But that which is, which is so much, yeah. Which is why we hope to give Rob Hubbard his own concert um, once we've proved that we can sell tickets to this one. Yeah. And that, and the people, I imagine people would come out of that concert, and I, I would hope that they would be thinking, "Where can I listen to more of this?" That was the best night of my life. And then there's the Rob Hubbard concert where he's able to really show off the long versions of his stuff, or you know, to some of the stuff from other platforms, which is just brilliant but underappreciated. So just gets, so, gets uh, overshadows because everyone wants Commando. Yeah, and uh, Commando isn't in that concert. Um, controversial i'm sorry well it's (laughs) the concert is mostly driven by what's good orchestrated as opposed to what's popular yeah sometimes sometimes those two things correspond like monty on the run and thing on the spring yep 
and sometimes they don't, such as uh, Mark Cook's piece Storm Warrior, um, which is which is an amazing bark um, stroke uh, bark piece, which telling the entire story of a Russian war. Now, um, the march to war in you know War and Peace days, yeah. um, and it's incredibly powerful. But uh, you know, to listen to the Sid, you you would you wouldn't get that from it. That Mark Mark did an arrangement of which took it a certain part of the way, and I took it further. And um, spine tingling, absolutely spine tingling. It's not just putting the notes on different instruments in the orchestra. There's a it's getting to the soul of the piece and then turning that bubble inside out, like, uh, doing an entire Arabian suite based on Zoid's Master of Magic, Spellbound, Dragon's Lair, and Nemesis the Warlock, for instance, like anything Rimsky-Korsakov would have done. That's... Oh, yeah, man, now, now I want to come over for it. Um, <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's the idea. Oh, but well, that, that sounds absolutely... Yeah, that's fantastic, Chris. So, I mean, I guess in closing, I mean, where can people find you? Obviously, the Kickstarter is project hubbard they can they can find you over there uh, project hubbard.com and c64audio.com and, and on facebook and yep and facebook so is it project hubbard on facebook or is it your c64 audio over there as well it's project hubbard on facebook as well cool. and c64 audio there's two different pages yeah you have to oh come and check it out so well chris i do appreciate do appreciate your time eh? it's um been great to great thank to you chat. very much i am yeah always keen to talk all things rob and oh. so uh yeah i hope it hope it was usable oh, yeah it was, it was extremely enlightening and um um you can hear your passion for the project oh that's good because i thought i needed more coffee <laughs> if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't 10 o'clock at night here i'd uh, i'd be right there with you but i actually want to sleep, <laughs> sleep tonight Oh, that's a good idea but um, that's awesome. a good idea awesome. I, I would i would love i would love for to for there to be a Commodore 64 concert in the Sydney Opera House. I'd, that would be ultimate, wouldn't it? I would love that as well because it's a lot closer, that would be than, fantastic, lot yeah. closer than London. If, all we need is 1,500 people who want to sit there and pay for tickets and we can make anything happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is it. That's, Something to think about. It really is. That would be fantastic. Tom. I could, I could hire. We could hire the best orchestra in Australia, and put them in the opera house. Fifteen hundred to two thousand people, we'd be sorted. Yep, and I reckon you would comfortably get it. There's surprisingly a lot of a lot of fans, a lot of the people we get it. You know, with the PAX Expo coming up in a couple of weeks' time, it's always a, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people come to the the classic area and are very much taken with the the sixty fours and the stuff eight bits. So yeah. I reckon you would be you'd be a safe bet there. Hopefully, we'd have to put way of, we'd have to put way of the exploding fist in there, wouldn't we? To oh no, oh no, Neil oh, Brent. No questions yep. asked. Definitely. Yep. Got to have some Australian stuff in there. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Right. Well, yeah. Nice talking to you. Likewise, Crystal. Appreciate your time and uh, good luck with the Kickstarter. Thank you very much. Right. See you later. All right. Catch you later. All right. Good night. Thanks. Thanks.